Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast. Insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. Hello, I'm Corinne Jackson, a Littler attorney and principal of Workplace Policy and Analytics in Los Angeles, California. I'm also a member of Littler's Workplace Policy Institute, or WPI. And I'm Bruce Sarchet, a Littler shareholder in Sacramento, California, and also a member of the WPI. WPI is dedicated to making sure that policymakers hear the voice of employers as they consider workplace legislation and regulations. WPI also alerts the employer community to changes that affect their workplaces, especially in California. Fun fact, Bruce, did you know that California's economy is the fifth largest in the world? Yeah, I heard that. Uh, The economy here is larger than nearly every other country on the planet, including larger than the economies of Canada, Mexico, and all but one European nation. So while employers have a lot to gain with a presence here, the Golden State is not just good times and sunshine. Yep. Uh, Employers doing business in California do have a lot to consider, and there are numerous compliance changes taking effect in 2019 that shouldn't be overlooked. For example, the most recent legislative session, which concluded in October of 2018, ushers in a number of new laws effective on January 1. And in addition, the compositions of both the California Supreme Court and the legislature have changed. And following the recent election, we have a new governor taking office, Gavin Newsom, who was previously the mayor of San Francisco and lieutenant governor. So in light of all these developments, Corinne, I think it's time for a little New Year's resolution. What did you have in mind, Bruce? I already resolved to give up podcasts, and look how well that's turning out. Yeah, not so good. Uh, You should have known better than that. But we're on a roll with these podcasts, so no stopping us now. Yes, yes, I suppose so. So let me guess. Your resolution is to share with our listeners the wide-sweeping set of changes taking effect in California this year to prepare and also completely terrify them. Well, that's right. In addition to eating more fruits and vegetables, I think this year we need to continue to keep our podcast listeners informed about developments in the Golden State and what's new here. So let's go. I had a hunch. Well, time's a waste and then. It's already January. And the more employers can prepare, the less scary it'll all seem. So where should we start? Well, let's begin with some of the legislative highlights. Now, because we've covered much of this ground in prior articles and podcasts, we're just going to keep it to the headlines here. Our first item is one of the most controversial bills that Governor Brown approved last year, or maybe ever, SB 826. Under this new law, women must be included on the boards of directors of publicly held corporations that have their principal executive offices in California. The number of women directors and the deadline for compliance both depend upon the size of the board. But at a minimum, all covered corporations must have at least one female director by the close of the 2019 calendar year. Moving on to a new law affecting the home care industry, currently, the California Department of Social Services maintains a registry of home care aides and applicants. AB 2455 
mandates that for any new registrations or renewals of home care aids submitted on or after July 1, 2019, the department must provide an electronic copy of a home care aide's name, telephone number, and cell phone number to a labor union upon the union's request. Beyond these two laws, there are a host of new statutes that grew out of the Me Too movement. These laws have, for example, expanded the types of individuals who can be named as defendants in lawsuits involving sexual harassment claims. Anti-harassment training requirements have been expanded too. Starting this year, training is required for all employees, not just supervisors. In addition, the training duties now apply to more employers. Employers with five or more employees now must provide training, which is a huge change from the prior threshold of 50 employees. And as we discussed in detail in an earlier podcast, there are also several new restrictions on confidentiality clauses and release agreements. If employers have not done so already, they should take a close look at all employment-related releases or other waivers or other employment agreements to make sure they do not violate these new restrictions. We could talk for hours about the Me Too-related bills, but let's move on. Because it's not just the legislature that keeps employers hopping in California. The state Supreme Court has become decidedly more employee-friendly recently. That's right, Corinne. It's a more activist court, and in 2018, the court handed down three significant decisions in the area of labor and employment law, each of which have complicated life for California employers in different ways. First, the court adopted a more expansive way of calculating the regular rate of pay when employees are provided with flat-sum bonuses. Now, I know that may sound a little bit like gibberish, so let's break it down. The regular rate of pay is different from the minimum wage. It is based on what a particular employee actually earns by the hour in a work week, and it is the figure that is used when paying overtime. Yeah, so when California employers are calculating overtime, they are not necessarily using the minimum wage. The regular rate of pay fluctuates depending on how many hours an employee worked in a week, and importantly, the regular rate of pay includes some things, like bonus pay, that you might assume would not be included. That's right, Bruce. The court in Alvarado v. Dart Container Corps of California addressed how an employee's bonus, a flat $15 bonus for completing any weekend shift, should be factored into the regular rate of pay. Now, without getting into all of the math required, suffice it to say that the California Supreme Court rejected arguments that the state had to follow the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act, or FLSA. The Supreme Court chose a different option, the one that actually more favorably benefited employees. It also specified that overtime on the bonus be paid at 1.5 times the regular rate of pay under state law and not the 0.5 times the regular rate of pay as permitted under the FLSA. And then moving on to our second Supreme Court decision, the Supreme Court in California also deviated from traditional FLSA interpretations on important questions concerning de minimis working time. Now, very broadly speaking, under the FLSA, employers are not required to compensate employees when they work off the clock for a couple minutes or so, as long as the time is truly minimal or de minimis. 
So for example, if an employee has tasks like arming the store security alarm that must be accomplished after she clocks out, but it only takes two minutes, that brief working time does not necessarily need to be paid. That type of interpretation has been followed for years by federal courts. But the California Supreme Court rejected that approach in 2018 and held that state law does not recognize the federal de minimis exception. It concluded that state law does not allow employers to require employees to routinely work for minutes off the clock without compensation. That case involved an employee who regularly performed between four and 10 minutes of uncompensated work during closing shifts every day. While the scope of that decision surely will be tested in other cases, employers should investigate their timekeeping software and practices to make sure their procedures are in line with this interpretation. And moving on to our third big decision from the California Supreme Court in 2018, the court in a 7-0 to decision endorsed a different and more strict test for classifying individuals as independent contractors. This new ABC test applies to workers covered by California's wage orders, so it is essentially limited to non-exempt employees. And under the ABC test, workers are presumed to be employees unless all three of the following conditions are met. A, the individual is free from control and direction in connection with the performance of the service, both under his or her contract for the performance of the service and in fact, B, the service is performed outside the usual course of the business of the employer, and C, the individual is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, profession, or business of the same nature as that involved in the service performed. There's clearly a lot involved with each prong. In short, the new standard means that a business cannot engage an individual as an independent contractor unless he or she has already established some kind of independent business to provide services to the general public that are unrelated to the firm's own usual business. So while we wait for further clarification from the courts on the new California standard, employers should carefully consider whether this decision applies to them and how it might impact their workers. Misclassification can be a costly mistake. Another noteworthy development at the California Supreme Court is the appointment of a new justice. Yes, the court has been short one member since the 2017 retirement of Justice Kathleen Werdiger. Before leaving office, Governor Jerry Brown selected his appointments advisor, Joshua Groban, to fill that vacancy. In keeping with his tradition, Governor Brown chose a candidate who has never been a judge. Groban has experience in private practice and has served as an advisor to the governor for about eight years. And on December 21st, the Commission on Judicial Appointments held a public hearing and formally confirmed Groban for the high court. Accordingly, Democratic appointees now will dominate the California Supreme Court. All right, Bruce, now that we've covered some of the key statewide 2018 developments, Let's fire up the old crystal ball and look ahead. The November election certainly shook things up in Sacramento. 
Yeah, it sure did. Uh, Democrats gained seats and solidified what's called a supermajority in both houses of the state legislature. That means that Democrats hold two-thirds of the seats in each chamber. That supermajority enables Democrats to do three things, all without a single Republican vote. If they choose, they can raise taxes, suspend legislative rules, and override any vetoes from the governor. And then to top it off, in addition to our new activist Supreme Court and our new supermajority legislature, we have a new governor taking office on January 7th. Governor Newsom, like his predecessor, is also a Democrat. Now, the outgoing governor, Jerry Brown, often vetoed bills that the California Chamber of Commerce labeled as job killers. And although the legislature will likely continue sending such bills to the governor's desk in the new term, the question is whether incoming Governor Newsom will sign them. Well, let's look at some of his history. San Francisco imposed several requirements on employers during Newsom's tenure as mayor. During his term, for example, the city enacted ordinances mandating that employers provide health insurance and commuter benefits. And he's also expressed support for enhanced parental leave options. So, Corinne, what types of bills do you think that the legislature will send to Governor Newsom? Well, based on the last two-year session and what's been floated already in the Capitol, I suspect the legislature may try to get him a bill creating a system for universal health care in California. Yeah, I think so, and I'm sure we can also expect more Me Too-related measures. We may see bills, for example, that require even more training or that attempt to lengthen the statute of limitations for aggrieved workers to bring harassment complaints. Fair or predictable scheduling ordinances have been enacted in certain cities like San Francisco, Emeryville, and San Jose. I wouldn't be surprised if the legislature proposes statewide mandates on these topics too. Among other things, these laws typically require employers to provide their employees with their schedule two weeks in advance and pay them extra compensation if there are changes to that schedule. And these bills often include what's called an opportunity to work provision. These ordinances obligate employers to offer open hours to existing employees before hiring more employees or subcontractors. It also seems likely that the legislature may try to tempt Governor Newsom with bills intended to undercut the enforceability of arbitration agreements. Such measures might actually conflict with federal law concerning arbitration, but that hasn't stopped the legislature before. Too true, Corinne. The California legislature seems like it's always trying to find new ways to restrict the use of arbitration agreements, and I don't see that trend letting up. So what do we think Governor Newsom will do with such bills? Will he just sign them all? Well, there are a lot of people who think he's going to sign a lot of them. I must admit that. But I think we need to look a little more carefully. There are a number of potential checks on his automatic endorsement of bills that might really make some trouble for employers in California and stifle economic growth. First, as we mentioned earlier, Governor Newsom is a former business owner, so he should understand the pressures facing employers and their effect on the economy. Second, he's touted himself as someone who wants to foster innovation 
he probably won't want to make workplace regulations so very onerous that they preclude companies from creating the next big thing. Additionally, he has some personal factors to consider as he takes the reins. He was just recently promoted and may need some time to weigh his options and find his groove. Yet, on the other hand, he may also already be thinking about his next steps. Will he run for re-election? Will he seek another, perhaps even higher, public office? His plans for his own future may very well shape the positions he chooses to take as California governor. Absolutely, Corinne. And another factor in play, I think, is the state of the overall national economy and the California economy. There are troubling signs that the U.S. and California economies may be headed for a recession. Governor Newsom is not going to want to be seen as causing or exacerbating any downturn by passing laws that place burdens on businesses and job creation. While we're on the subject of a possible recession, should the economy turn south, and if wages are an issue, the governor has a couple options for adjusting the currently scheduled increases to the state minimum wage. That's right. It's a provision in our state minimum wage law, which I think a lot of people have forgotten about. But in 2016, when the state minimum wage was increased, the legislature actually provided what are called a couple of off-ramps for the governor. Now, as of January 1st, the minimum wage increased to $12 an hour for larger employers, those with 26 or more employees. It's also set to increase each year to 13, 14, so on, until it reaches $15 an hour in 2022. At that point, it's going to be adjusted in future years based on inflation. But during that initial ramp-up period through 2022, the governor could, in theory, stop the wage increases based either on general economic reasons or on state budgetary reasons. That's right. Those are those off-ramps that I mentioned earlier. Now, it seems unlikely the governor would want to make such a change unless absolutely necessary. And I'm certain he would face extreme pressure not to exercise the option and delay increases in the minimum wage. But the threat of halting the minimum wage increases could be political leverage used to obtain other concessions. While we wait to see what the new year brings here in Sacramento, we can't lose track of the lawmakers in cities and counties up and down the state. Indeed, as they say, all politics is local. Municipal governments have not been shy about adopting their own workplace laws in recent years, and we expect that trend to continue unabated. Although, we can't overlook one other group of lawmakers who have been particularly effective. And who is that, Corinne? The voters. California often has a slew of ballot initiatives for voters to consider. And sometimes, even just the threat of a ballot initiative is enough to force the legislature's hand and spur action. That's true. That's exactly what happened when a consumer privacy law was enacted last year. The state legislature ended up pushing it along hastily after a more onerous initiative on the same subject qualified for the ballot. Ballot initiatives can be sponsored at the local level, too. Oakland voters, for example, just approved a new ordinance known as Measure Z that grants additional protections to hotel workers. Measure Z 
raises their minimum wage and requires employers to provide them with panic buttons, among other things. So, sort of summing up here, I think there are maybe four safe predictions that we can make at this point concerning the future of workplace changes in California. Employers can expect more activist decisions from the California Supreme Court, especially with its newest member. We can assume that the legislature will continue to propose very progressive pro-employee bills and that soon-to-be Governor Newsom will sign at least some of them. And employers can also comfortably assume that at the municipal level, we'll have more and more newer and more creative ordinances regulating the workplace, adding to the compliance challenges which employers face in California. And finally, we anticipate that ballot initiatives may take an increasingly important role in pushing discussions on specific topics, potentially with ramifications for the workplace. Bruce, I think I'm going to take up reading tea leaves as my next New Year's resolution. Good idea, Corinne. That could be a very valuable skill in our profession. And even if it doesn't pan out, we're going to continue to monitor further legislative and regulatory developments in California, as well as any enlightening cases, through our usual channels. As always, we will be sure to report back on any noteworthy progress. For now, many thanks to all of our listeners, and here's wishing you a happy and compliant New Year. Please stay tuned to Littler's Workplace Policy Institute for further updates and information regarding state and local workplace regulatory and legislative developments. Thanks and Happy New Year. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.